0: calling men to office. Um, We see that activity, of course, in the Old Testament, but also as Christ walked on the earth in the New Testament. He prayed all night and then appointed His disciples or apostles, the twelve. The Ephesian elders are told that the Holy Spirit has appointed them. Number three, in the Old Testament, Christ called many office bearers directly. In the New Testament, too, the apostles. But since his ascension to heaven and the outpouring of the Spirit, Christ calls men to office through his Spirit-filled church. So now um, we don't have men that appear here and say, you know, I received a vision last night. I am to be the next deacon. We don't do that, but Christ is at laboring through his church to call men to office. Number four, Christ's method of calling through his church involves the responsibility of the congregation and the leadership authority of our office bearers. So it's a joint effort. And then some biblical examples. i like to look at two of those in a moment. Acts chapter 1 um, is the situation where uh, the Spirit is not yet poured out, but Christ has ascended to heaven. And uh, we're minus one apostle, right? Who's missing now? Judas. Judas. Okay, and so they need uh, to fill the number. And so in Acts chapter 1... Um, Peter says that Judas' departure was according to Scripture, and then he says we need to find another, and so let's consider the men who've accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, from his baptism to the time he's taken up, that they might be a witness with us of the resurrection. And then Acts 1.23, and they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justus, and Matthias. Okay, so here they're looking for a a new 12th apostle, and they proposed two. Who is the they there? Who proposed the two names? Pardon? The apostles? Okay. Well, it says at, at, at verse 15... In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. So I would say it's not entirely clear that it's the apostles. It could be the 120. It could be the church. Um, or we could say it's the church under the leadership of the apostles. By the way, I, we should uh, tell you, this is being recorded and broadcast on YouTube, I think live right now, Right? So, um, not to scare any of you, if they can't see your face, so you can ask whatever you want. If I say something really foolish, you know, they got my face, but you can say whatever you want, they won't know who said it, but uh, we just thought we should tell you all that, uh, that it's live. So, uh, so um, it could be the, the congregation under the leadership of the apostles, could be the apostles. Um, it's not entirely clear, but it certainly seems to involve both the congregation and the current leadership of the church. In Acts chapter 6, you have another situation, and that's where um, some of the Greek widows are being neglected in the distribution of the bread, and uh, the apostles say, we shouldn't leave the word of God to serve tables, so seek out from among you, this is Acts 6 verse 3, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose. And now you get the list of uh, seven men. Verse 6, whom they set before the apostles and when they had prayed they laid hands on them. So in this case the brethren choose out seven and they set those seven before the apostles and the apostles appoint them. So here um, I guess you could debate who the brethren is. Um, But again, it seems to be a cooperation between the congregation and the current leadership, the apostles. Reading on on the handout I gave you there, under those five points, it says, uh, Louis Burkhoff speaks of the twofold calling of officers, the internal calling and the external calling. Um, We would say that every office bearer needs to have both of those, internal and external calling, the internal being that the spirit convincing him of the call, Uh, but then he comments on the external calling, saying that this, this external call is the call that comes to one through the instrumentality of the church. It's not issued by the pope, nor by a bishop or a college of bishops, but by the local church. Both the officers and the ordinary members of the church have a part in it, that the officers have a guiding hand in it, but not to the exclusion of the people, is evident from the passages we just looked at, the people were recognized even in the choice of an apostle in Acts 1. It would seem that in the apostolic age, the officers guided the choice of the people by calling attention to the necessary qualifications that were required for office, but allowed the people to take part in the choosing. Well, the next point there says, so what are some ways in which the churches have honored both the place of the congregation and the leaders? Um Some ways in which the congregation's role is honored as as the spirit-endowed body with wisdom for choosing her office-bearers is that uh, the church gets to pray to the Christ who himself calls men to office. Uh, She's given opportunity oftentimes to nominate men or to give names to the the current council to nominate. The congregation is given an opportunity to object to the names. When names are published in the bulletin that there's going to be an election, A congregational meeting on such and such a date, the congregation may object to those names if they have a legitimate objection. Um, The congregation is given opportunity to elect from a slate of nominees or if single nominations are proposed to approve those by way of a vote. And then the congregation after they've been elected or approved could still object before their installation or ordination. B, some ways the authority of current office bearers, the current leaders are are exercise office. Uh, The office bearers guide and oversee the entire process of appointing future office bearers. The office bearers approve and present the nominees to the congregation. The office bearers guide and oversee the congregational meeting and the election process. And the office bearers have to decide whether to ratify the decisions of a congregational meeting. A congregational meeting is not strictly um, uh, possess authority. It's more, in some ways, of an advisory vote. The decisions of a congregational meeting have to be ratified by the current leadership. Okay, now let's come to the question of a single nomination versus a double slate. I think that might have been part of the question last week. Should. In other words, should we propose, if there's one elder going out of office, should we propose one name for the congregation to vote on as a man who would take that place, or should we propose two names or four names or whatever? We speak of a single nomination, or sometimes people call it a double slate, when you give twice the number of names needed for a single office. Uh, reading there, it says, the Bible does not appear to give any direct command as to how many men to nominate per office, and the biblical examples differ. Thus, the church is required to apply scriptural principles and wisdom to the matter. And this accounts, I would think, for the difference in Reformed church orders and the freedom some church orders leave in place. Clarence Bauman, who writes a commentary on the church order of the Free Reformed Churches of Australia, writes, although there was only one vacancy to be filled in Acts 1, the one apostle, two names were nominated. And then in Acts 6, seven men were nominated to be nominated for the office of deacon. Seven were chosen and set before the apostles. So in Acts 1, it's a double slate, two names for one office. In Acts 6, it's seven men for seven places, really. So he says from these two references, it would seem scripturally correct to nominate either as many brothers as there are vacancies or twice the number. That's a good, safe thing to say because if you turn the page, at the list there's a whole bunch of uh, church order quotes there, the first one from the church order of Dort, 1618 to 1619, the years when the synod met, and the the original church order of Dort said that the elders shall be chosen by the judgment of the consistory and the deacons, so that every church shall be at liberty, according to its circumstances, to present to the congregation as many elders as are needed, then they have to be installed with prayers and so forth or twice the number of elders needed may be present, half of them to be chosen by the congregation. So the Church Order of Dort um, said 400 years ago, you can give the exact number needed, a single nomination, or you could do a double slate. The URC Church Order does not specify... Um, That's our United Reformed Churches church order. It just says the council shall present to the congregation nominations. The Canadian Reformed Church order says the consistory with the deacons shall present to the congregation either as many candidates as there are vacancies to be filled or at the most twice as many. Similarly, the Free Reformed Churches of Australia, the consistory with the deacons shall present to the congregation at the most twice as many. So the, the uh, DOOR, the URC, the Canadian Reformed and Free Reformed of Australia all say you can do single nominations or up to a double slate, but not more, not more than two per single office. The Christian Reformed Church, at least in 1965, that's what I was looking at yesterday, said in calling to an office the consistory shall present to the congregation a nomination of at least twice the number to be elected. So for those of us who came out of that, denomination uh, might have been used to that, that you always give a a double slate, always twice the number to be elected. And then the OPC, the last one there, is, is interesting. It says, any member, any member of the congregation who is entitled to vote may propose to the session, to the elders, nominations for these offices. The session, or elders, shall certify those nominees whom Upon examination, it judges to possess the necessary qualifications for office. The session shall announce to the congregation the names of those has certified. Election shall be from among those certified. I don't know if there's any further rules that would say, you know, don't do more than twice the number or anything. But the way this particular paragraph reads, it would seem that, you know, members could nominate, you know, ten different men for one office. And if the elders examine those men and find they're all fit for office they could certify 10 names to the congregation out of which to vote for one elder. I, I, I would have to ask the OPC brothers how that really works out. Maybe there's, each congregation might have local rules and say you can't do more than twice the number. I don't know. Obviously, if you nominate 10 guys for office, you end up with a long congregational meeting, right? Because now each guy gets, you know, 5 out of 50 votes. Now nobody's got a majority. Then you have to cut the number in half and vote again. Then you might have to cut the number again and vote again and it becomes um, somewhat difficult. Well, what are some pros and cons for single or double double slates of nominees? Let me ask you, first of all. If we say the Bible doesn't give a a precise command, you have to nominate one for one or two for one. uh, Instead, we have to apply biblical principles. What would you think would be some of the benefits of single nominations and some of, of, of doing more than a single, a double slate or whatever? Can you think of anything that comes to mind? Maybe you've had some experiences... I, in fact, I, I regret yesterday as I was working on this that I've never even uh, talked to the elders here about how things go here or what benefits or complications have been encountered and, and so forth that affects how we do things here. So I, um, my list, there's just some things that came to my mind, but I, I really can't represent uh, IRC very well at this point. Sure. So the situation was that they were putting two men for one, double slate, two men for one office, and some men were continually not elected, and finally they just asked their names not to be put up anymore. Okay. yeah, I've, I've seen that same thing. It becomes uh, difficult for the man and his wife sometimes if like something's wrong, they're never getting elected. That's a possibility. Any other uh, pros or cons for either one of these situations come to mind? Okay, so if you with single nominations, it might feel like the council is uh, deciding it. the congregation doesn't get as much say in it. Okay. From a congregation's perspective it's nice to be able to trust diligence Okay. Okay, so a pro for single nomination might be that the elders have looked into it, you have that confidence, and maybe they've thought through things as well as to who at this point in time would be a good fit to serve with the current needs or whatever. So IRC has always done one single nominations. Uh, well, I'll read. i read what came up to me off the top of my head. There, uh, letter A. Why might some prefer single nominations? Um, well, there's not enough qualified men, perhaps, to present a double slate. I, I've seen those situations. It's hard to find. If you have two elders going out trying to find four men who are both qualified to serve and willing to serve, it can be a difficulty. Uh, well-equipped men are consistently passed by in congregational voting. That was the one mentioned, um, and it could be simply because the one man is not very charismatic. He might be very gifted and very godly and great one-on-one, but he's just—he he doesn't stand up and make himself known publicly, and so he doesn't—he's not known by. His, particularly in a larger congregation, right? If you have a man who's not very charismatic, uh, I mean, we have some URCs that have four hundred, five hundred, even six or seven hundred people. It uh, could be a man who just isn't known by the majority of people. Um, and then if, he's, if his name's always passed by, then the church could be deprived of el- eligible men. He wants his name off. Uh, why might some prefer a larger slate of names? seems to give the congregation a greater role, as some mentioned. Um, some people don't come to congregational meetings because they think it's, quote-unquote, already decided. Why do I need to come? It's already a, it's already done deal, right? That would be, a, I think, a misrepresentation, but it's a feeling that some have had. Um, some could argue that it prevents the current office bearers from passing by a man that they're not familiar with. So maybe the congregation does know a man that the current office bearers don't know. And so you could have sort of the reverse. Now the office bearers are passing by the man that the congregation would have drawn attention to. Um, and then finally, somebody could argue that if you have a double slate or more, it, it shows to the congregation that there's more qualified men, and it might encourage more men to aspire to office I you know, think like the OPC when they when I don't know how if it really goes this way I, I guess I've never asked the OPC brothers about it but uh, the OPC book of church order you know if the congregation gives names and the, if the consistory was to certify every man who was qualified and it could be encouraging to the body and it could cause lots of young men to want to aspire to office because it's not just one out of a hundred but there's lots of men whom God has qualified they might see and that could be encouraging. Um, Anything else come to mind after reading those that anybody wants to draw attention to? All right. Well, um, both current. this is the conclusion that I came up with. Both current office bearers and congregation need to be involved. John Calvin's view is that Christ himself selects the office bearers under the leadership of the church officers with the cooperation of the congregation. Um and while the Bible doesn't give specific commands detailing how this cooperation is to look between current office bearers and congregation, this cooperation sets the Reformed Presbyterian churches apart from hierarchical forms and congregational forms of government. Reading the quote there on the next, pa- next uh, paragraph by Vandell and Monsmas, um, their Revised Church Order commentaries on the Christian Reformed Church Order um, back in the 60s. It says, in the Church of Rome, office bearers appoint new office bearers without consulting the congregation, right? They just appoint your office bearers. The Reformers rejected that. Calvin, I remember reading somewhere, is very strong that you don't just set a minister over a congregation, they have no say. They have to have opportunity to approve that man, they're going to listen to his preaching. Um, The original Lutherans permitted the government, that's the civil government, to elect its office bearers. Remember, uh, they had an Erastian form of government where, where the, the church was ruled really by the state. According to independent or congregational systems, the congregation appoints her office bearers directly, just a democracy, a vote. But according to Presbyterian or, or reform systems, Christ elects his office bearers, and he does so by the vote of the church under the guidance and supervision of current office bearers. Um, but again, Bauman says it bears repeating... That when all is said and done, it is not the congregation who calls to office, it is God who calls through the congregation. I think in the end, that's the great comfort, right? No matter how you do it, if you're calling upon the Lord to do this, our confidence that Christ, the head of the church, is appointing men. That doesn't mean, you know, do it however you want. Um, there, was a, there was a reformed church I knew of where they actually uh, drew names out of a hat. And they thought, you know, if, if God's in charge, dump all the men in there, pull them out. You know, I would say, well, the Bible says a little more than just God's in charge. It gives you qualifications for office, right? So uh, it gives the spirit to the, God's people for wisdom. So we don't just want to say it's a free-for-all, God will take care of it. But uh, there is a confidence that Christ rules in his church. Well, any, uh, any concluding thoughts? That sort of was a jumping ahead to where we're going in the church order about how men um, are appointed to office. comes up under ministers and also elders and deacons in the first section of the church order. All right, well, then I'm going to return here to the um, lesson we were working on last time because we only got about half of it done, I think. So if anybody needs that sheet that says Lesson 2 at the top, there are still some. I think they're over there. Um, But I think we're up to about question 9, or at least that's where I would like to go. Um, question 8 says, uh, where do office bearers receive their authority? And that's important, again, to note that since Christ appoints them into office, they receive their authority from him. So office bearers, we noted before, are not, um, it's not a, a democracy or democratic republic where uh, you're elected by the congregation, you have to represent their wishes, whatever they want. No, your authority comes from Christ. You need to represent his wishes all the time, so you're accountable to him. Um, Let's talk about the duties of a minister and what is to be the focus of his work. If you look in the church order, uh, Article 2 is the duties of the minister. Uh, it says, Article 2, the duties belonging to the office of minister of the Word consist of continuing in prayer and in the ministry of the Word. That would come right from that Act 6 passage when the apostles said, we shouldn't be diverted now to give our attention to caring for these widows, we can't give up the word and prayer to do that. So um, here it's saying, it's applying that to the minister, saying he should focus on that, uh, administering the sacraments, catechizing the youth, and assisting the elders in shepherding and discipline of the congregation. Well, it's very evident, what is the focus of a minister's work according to our church order? Prayer and preaching, okay. Yeah, um, prayer is to saturate everything, and the focus here is on preaching, administering the sacraments, which are a visible word, catechizing the youth, which is applying that word. Um, so it's, it's a labor in the word. First, uh, Timothy, remember 5:17? It said that, that elders are worthy of honor, um, and then it speaks of those who especially labor in the word. Right? And so there seems to be among the eldership some set aside to labor in the word. Uh, what are, question nine asks, what can threaten to distract the ministers, uh, can distract from that primary focus? Can you think of any ways that uh, ministers might be distracted from that focus in churches? Maybe think of churches today. I would say there are some churches where the ministry of the word has has lost the focus of ministry of word, what, what takes its place sometimes? Divisions. Pardon? Divisions. divisions. Okay, yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, that's true. If there's divisions in a the congregation, there's a bad situation. Uh, yeah, certainly the ministers have been consumed with all the troubles and trials and haven't been able to concentrate. That's very true. Trying to be okay, trying to be politically correct. Keep everyone happy. Crane? when like example when they, like, uh, example COVID, when they preaching about COVID, they in, they in mind off the Bible. Okay. Yeah, preach current topics instead of the scriptures? Yeah. Spend the time uh, spend your time in the week uh, reading newspapers and watching the news instead of reading the scriptures. Yeah. Somebody else have their hand up? Evangelizing. Evangelizing? Okay. Meaning they could be busy bringing the word outside the church but not laboring in the church? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Programs of the church. Good. Anything else come to mind? I'm going to grab a drink.
1: Sometimes the elders have to shield the pastor from spending too much time in discipline matters or very difficult matters that that
0: could create a hardship for the pastor as well. Okay. So uh, time spent on discipline or other matters. Nobody's brought up the one that I'm thinking of right now. You can visit a lot of church websites and you'd see this right on the front page. Music, music? that's a guess, yeah. There are, there are uh, ministers of music sometimes. But there are some um, websites that say um, things like Senior Pastor, Executive Pastor, and it uh, becomes very clear that some view the minister's job, or at least some of their ministers, to be an executive function. And this is a business. job of the pastor to run finances or run whatever. But clearly, his, even his title is not minister of the word. It's minister of administration, really. And uh, uh, that's the one we were warned about in seminary a lot, is that already back when I was in the seminary, the professors, I think, noted a movement... That lots of ministers had become CEOs, right? And it wasn't a ministry of the word anymore. It was a ministry of administration. And um, what are can you think of some ways that the that the URC churches, or reformed churches, have done a good job safeguarding the ministry of the word? Gary mentioned one already. The elders, um, I think, often protect ministers from misappropriating their time. I think. <laughs> Two sermons <laughs> okay yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, just requiring the minister of attacks, right, scripture to be in the word, either the scriptures themselves or the summary of the word, which still brings you back to the scriptures um. Yeah, uh, well, um, no, that's good. I, you know, I was kind of laughing, when you, I thought you were going to say two sermons. I think that forces our main thing is not too many, guys, they wouldn't last very long probably if, if they were trying to pull them out on Saturday she wouldn't be happy. So something would have to give. Um, yeah yeah that's good the elders uh the elders are off on the appointment for stuff. Are we going to say something Andy? Have districts and they shepherd the flock. You know, in the churches I was thinking of where ministers become CEOs, there often is not an emphasis on eldership. So I think both of you are right on that as soon as you don't have um, a body of elders that are shepherding and in charge of the congregation, then you end up with a, a staffed congregation. That's what a lot of churches are in America. And if you look at the websites, it's all about the staff. Sometimes they have a board of elders still. But it becomes quite evident that at least to me, looking at the website and talking to some people, that it's the paid staff that's really running the church. And so then you end up where well, you have to have some guys who are doing the administration, And they often call them ministers. Some of these are secretaries or whatever. But um, I, think, I think the biblical model that we're trying to follow is one that has elders that are shepherding the flock, and that is a huge, a huge bonus. I would say that um, I've appreciated, as being a minister, that our churches have... Um, have seen the minister's role as a ministry of the Word, and therefore they've done things like give him a book allowance to buy books. They've provided often a study in which to study, and they've given him time to do the study. And then they've given expectations that, that, that this will be the bulk of his work and he needs to be laboring in the Word. So all of that together, um, I think, has, has been a great bonus to uh, the churches and to our, our ministers and their work to uh, keep them focused in the Word. So uh, I'm very grateful as I look at our churches for how that's worked out. I think it brings benefit and blessing to the church because what we need more than anything is not a great administrator. We need more than anything the voice of Jesus Christ the shepherd, the word. So uh, I think we can be very thankful for our Reformed heritage and for this emphasis. And I think it's done well. I think if you um, were to visit churches throughout the world, you would find, generally speaking, that the Reformed Presbyterian churches... um, have a much more... Um, I think our history of exegesis, study of the Word in the Reformed tradition, is richer than any other because we have given men, devoted them to the study of the Word so much. We have seminaries, we have scholars, we have ministers who are laboring in the Word. And so we have a, a body of interpretation of the Word that, that flows from a long history of working and working in the text. And I think our churches have been well-blessed for, for that reason. Um, Well, a proof text would be 2 Timothy four verse two. The Apostle Paul he talks about the fact he's about to die. Uh, Paul is. I'm being okay. That's a good point. It requires even to apply. At least this is how I recall it. Required a letter of your elders um, testifying that they believe you're to be that you should go to seminary, kind of thing. So you're not on your own. Hopefully, there's a communication between the professors and the elders. I know, like, Mid-America would send transcripts of grades and that kind of thing. My, uh, my, uh, I was, Mid-America um, connects you with a ministerial supervisor when you're in seminary, so my um, supervisor, Reverend Art Verberg, has, has been called the glory. But he told me that when he was at Calvin Seminary, um, I think it was uh, Dr. Samuel Vol- Volbada, who could be um, at times seen going down the hallway with his arm around a young man saying... You know the Christian schools need good teachers, <laughs> or um, you know we need a good reform publisher, right? Some of those publishers in Grand Rapids started the, the big names that we know today. But he, you know, he was trying us personally or in his office as a professor, if he saw a man that maybe wasn't fit in some way, uh, steering him in in another way. So um, it has happened in the history of reform seminaries, I guess. I, I would say that I, the, I think the seminaries though would not. Take themselves the responsibility or feel it was theirs, uh, it was their burden, they would put it back on the elders. That's a good point. We as a creation and elders should be looking, praying for, for God to send out men into the fields and, and try and encourage men in that. I um, I won't give you my whole story at all, but I can't say, you know, it is a since there's not a voice from heaven, it's a difficult work. I know there are times in seminary that I thought, I must not be called. I can't, I mean, these academic levels that professors want are so high and stuff and feeling discouraged. But then on summer assignments to go serve the people, they were encouraging and that kept me going. So, um, you know, I... I uh, That internal call about recognizing your own gifts, I I would say at times I I doubted that personally, but God's people were the encouragement, and and that kept me going. Anyway, I have to stop, I guess, so I'm going to close in prayer. We can come back to this next time, Lord willing. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to you that our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, calls men to the offices of elder and deacon and minister, and that he supplies his church throughout the ages with qualified, gifted, and willing men to give of their time and wives to stand beside them. We pray you continue to do that for all your churches and for this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.